Podcast. This is Blix. And this is Trav. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of showing that you are awesome in 30 minutes or less. This week we are doing Iron Fringeworthy, where we are given a, uh, an uncooked and uh, uncircumcised set of items that we are going to have to put into an adventure and within 30 minutes or less, so that, and then within uh, another two weeks, deliver a full-blown adventure to our various groups so that you guys can enjoy the fruit of our labor. Uh, we have uh, uh, Trav with us, and Blix is here, and it looks like Richard might actually make it online, because he's online right now. So this the four of us going to do this head-to-head as much as we can over Skype. So while I'm adding Richard to the group, uh, why don't uh, uh, Peter? Why don't you go over the list of possible items? Oh my God! Okay, so uh, we polled our fans, and several of them chimed in, and so we have. Let's see. We have uh, a bag of groceries, the Coral Sea in March. And a hotel made by the name of Exchilteleveneges. Whatever way you want to pronounce is good. Sochito Venegas. Uh, tickets to Game 3 of the 1961 World Series, Saturday. This is the second set, right? Yeah, this is the second set. Tickets to the Game 3 of the 1961 World Series, Saturday, October 7th. Crosley Field, Cincinnati, Ohio, Reds versus New York Yankees. A dark green 1958 Studebaker Scotsman and 30 pounds of U-235. A wheel hub assembly for a Muscovy, a 750-pound anteater, and Catherine Hepburn. Uh, and then our one of our hosts who's... What's that? Yeah, one of our hosts who's not here tonight, uh, Paul Nunet... Nunet... How you say his last name again? Nunez. Nunez. Yeah. Paul Nunez. Uh, since he's not here, he gets to participate as a as a submitter. Uh, steam locomotive, a child's diary, and a monogrammed personal flask of bourbon. So the rules will be, um, we take these three items and we make an adventure out of it in 30 minutes or less. Right. And you can't just, you got to be fair with the items. You can't just go and like say, oh yeah, and on a shelf you see blah, 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 blah. Okay, you actually got to, it has to be significant in the story. Okay, so it looks like there's four of them, right? Four sets. So each of one of us will get one. 
Okay. So, Richard, are you there? Can you hear me? Uh, we can kind of hear you. You're kind of breaking up a little. All right, try now. That's better. Richard's calling from his steampunk phone. <laughs> you don't know how true that is. Uh, yes. <laughs> it's pouring through the ether. <laughs> Richard's probably calling from an obsolete Mac. Okay. Anyways, okay, so Richard, did you hear the list of items? I got the partial list. Okay, Trav, what? go for it. I get to assign him? Wait, what? <laughs> yeah, you get to assign it to, to Richard. I think that one with the, uh, the tickets to the World Series, a dark green 58 Studebaker Scotsman, and 30 pounds of uranium-235. Okay, hear that, Richard? That's what you got. Okay, got it. All right. Okay, so Peter, why don't you assign me something? Um, well, Bruce, you're getting the wheel hub assembly for a Muscovy, a 750-pound anteater, and Catherine Hepburn. Okay. Uh, Trav, I'm going to assign you the bag of groceries, the Coral Sea in March, and the hotel ma made by the name of... Uh, Zitschul, uh, Venegas. Uh, okay. And that leaves you, uh, uh, Peter, to have the steam locomotive, a child's diary, and a monogram personal flask of bourbon. Blix, I'll oh. trade you. <laughs> no, sir. No, you're not allowed to do that. That's what makes it iron. <laughs> right. Trav, uh, the steam locomotive would have been too easy for you. Yes, I thought so, too. <laughs> and I definitely wouldn't have given it to John. Be right. here. We've been here all night. <laughs> all right. So what we're going to do is we're going to go offline. Uh, of course, to you, not, no time will pass. <laughs> our, our, our gentle listeners, uh, we'll go offline for thirty minutes and we'll work on this adventure, and then we'll come back. So it's now nine forty-two. So we will be back uh, uh, in real time at ten twelve. All right, folks. And See just you. go ahead and. Um, um, if you can, just go ahead and pause recording or stop recording if you have to. All mm. right. See you on the other side of the ether. Okay, we're back. <laughs> wow, it hardly seems like a second went by, Bruce. Yeah, a lot of typing just happened. I, I didn't realize I was so fast a typist. <laughs> Let's do the time warp again. All right, so we have four... Uh, adventures, at least uh, rough drafts of adventures. So, uh, anybody want to go first? I'll, I'll take a shot at it, sure. Trav, you go first. Okay. Trav, you go first. All right. Now, remember, I got a bag of groceries, the Coral Sea in March, and Sochito Venegas, a hotel maid. All right. The portal opens upon New Caledonia and the Coral Sea in March 1950. The I did appear in a field outside Noumea, the capital. Hot and humid. It, it's hot and humid out, and the I did notice tire tracks heading from the portal toward the city, and they look recent. Suddenly, sounds of gunfire off in the distance erupt, racing to see the cause. The IDET happen upon fringe pirates raiding the city. 
As the IDET try to intervene, one of the pirates, a young African, grabs a hostage to ward off the IDET. The hostage, a Hispanic maid, barely holding onto her bag of groceries, is sobbing for her life. The pirate screams at her in French to shut up. Once the maid tearfully complies, the pirate asks her name. She replies in Spanish accent in French, Chosito Benigas. The pirate looks at the party and says, grinning, do we get to complete our business here, or does Jotito's brains become part of the wall next to me? What does the IDET do? Basically, they're faced with a hostage situation. Uh, th- okay, so the portal open. It, first of all, the portal, I assume, is a warp. Yes. Okay, and it's it's on an island. Is it on the, um, the coast, or is it... Nomea is on the... Southern coast of the island of New Caledonia in the Coral Sea in the South Pacific. So it's a it's a seaside city. And back in 1956, 1956, the pop the entire island only had not even 69,000 people. So this wasn't a very big city, but still it was seaside. So it you know it had to be relatively decent for uh, port traffic. And as I said, in March, so that's their summer as opposed to the Northern Hemisphere's winter. So you get there and it's already hot and humid and sticky. And and so, yeah, Nomea is, it is on the southern coast. Okay. Now, are the team members there for any particular reason or are they just, this happens to be the, the, uh, the alt that they were assigned? All that they were assigned. They did not expect to step into a hostage situation. All right. So uh, I, I missed something. Did, are they driving it uh, uh, up the road or are they on foot? I didn't put that. I would assume probably that they would have a vehicle of some type. So, yeah, they probably have their, their own SUV. But what it was, they noticed the tire tracks. As soon as they came through the portal, they saw fresh tire tracks heading away from the portal, so... Right, which is good to lead them someplace. And recent, you know, that means somebody, other fringe-worthy are here now, and then when the gunfire erupts, they kind of figure, mate, fringe pirate. Oh, okay, I didn't, okay, I didn't get that. I, I didn't realize that the tracks literally started in front of the portal. I, just, I, I thought maybe that they just saw some tire tracks, and they said, oh, this will lead us to, you know, civilization. Okay, yeah, I should have said that better. My apologies on that. Oh, hey, that's okay. Just refine, you know, I'm, I'm asking these questions so you can refine your adventure. So, okay. Uh, anybody uh, else have some questions about the adventure? Yeah, where do you, Trav, do you, the, did you have any idea of where this might go after this? Do you have any any ideas of, of, like, did you have any plans for any kind of directions on this in particular? I mean, other than exploration, I mean, it was March 1950, um... So, you know, it was that post-World War II, and because New Caledonia was in the Pacific Theater, uh, there was a high American content there, although they would have been, so they would have gotten to see, it would have been more of a historical type of uh, mission, because they would have gotten to see post-World War II, South Pacific, maybe, oh, what, what is the term, and Rich uses it, planes left behind on... Cargo cult. Oh, cargo cult. Yeah. They might get to see... 
So it would be more of a historical mission. They just had to, oh, by the way, there's a hostage situation that you sort of landed in the middle of. Okay, so the hostage doesn't really have anything to do with the adventure in particular? Or could she? But other, other than being a hostage of the fringe pirates, no. <laughs> well, it might be what what might be cool is that you know that they save her, right? And uh, as they get close, uh, or or maybe oh, they wouldn't do this. It wouldn't ha- it wouldn't matter because the crystal would glow around them anyway. But maybe they find out that she's actually fringe worthy, and that's why she's important to the adventure. Okay. Yeah, that didn't even occur. I was just like, okay, she was there. It's a hostage situation. These fringe pirates just happen to grab her and let us go about our business. Or, well, <laughs> she's going to have an extra hole in her head. You know, just they, they. So are the fringe pirates there for any particular reason or is it just random rating? Random rating. Just. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, you could always throw in a backstory on that, too, because they could always be fringe pirates that the group is familiar with. And it's like they might let her go, but it's like, oh, but we know they're close by and we're going to track them down now. Yeah. We haven't really talked about this on the um, on the show much, but, you know, fringe pirates, they could actually be engaged in a slave trade and not just, you know, pretty girls or whatever, but they might actually be involved in finding and collecting fringe-worthy people and selling them to other worlds with those people uh, that might be fringe-aware, where they know they here's somebody who who could be put onto your team, or you can use them as as for the purposes of of of, of exploration. Uh, especially if it's a more militaristic type thing, where they're all under you know the officers and such. Uh, you know, I mean, someone who's fringe-worthy might be worth quite a bit of money. Uh, to somebody, or even a finder's fee. You know, let's say another world had the equivalent of our ASA, who's obviously very low on the ethical totem pole, is the way we have them depicted. I, I'm sure they would be perfectly happy to pay a bounty for someone who is fringeworthy, if for no other reason to put, the, especially if they're a woman, to put them into the fringeworthy uh, de- uh, uh, development program. Yeah, the, the fringeworthy breeding program. Mm. Yeah, see, mm. I. Uh, I'm I'm not discounting that idea at all, but I always just saw the fringe pirates as pirates. They didn't steal people. They stole just they they took goods. They they either plundered for themselves or they might have you know tried to turn a profit. Not, not, none of that pirates grabbing women and then selling them at auction. That that uh, that's in the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. No, I, I, I see pirates, I usually see stealing goods, physical objects, things. Okay. Of, yeah, that, that hey, just hey it's your story, man. I'm yeah, not telling just, you what to do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I see this as a good, like, one of those adventure seeds, like one of those small um, uh, plot points that just get you into it, and the Game Master can take it from there. Well, yeah, that's all that I meant it to be. It was just a starting point. I mean, it can go anywhere, but that was just, okay, we got you in the adventure, and using these three things and for that matter trav that female could be one of the uh player characters who's joining the group for the first time yeah okay that i like that too yeah it'd be kind of a housemate all of a sudden getting thrown in the middle of a interdimensional exploration (laughs) it's like wait what dude it's it's fringe worthy i mean you play people like housemaids i think it was only like maybe 
what, five, six percent of people are actually of an adventuring profession. Everybody else is like, yeah, I'm a school teacher. Yeah, I'm a garbage man. Yeah, I'm a, a maid. Yeah. 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 And the French pads, they're at least a thousand years old. It could do with a good dusting. <laughs> thought they were self-cleaning. <laughs> hey, you know. And she, she might be a housemaid, but maybe she's a uh, maybe she's a social science student at school, at, you know, at a at a college nearby. And those um, those diplomacy types, you know, or social science skills might come in real handy. She's she's probably really handy with household chemicals. With a little bit of training, she could become an explosive expert. Oh God! <laughs> and watch out, she's killer with a mop. <laughs> <laughs> oh great, great! A, a female Stanley Spadowski. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> How many uh, pirates are there? Bonus points for our listeners who get that reference. Yeah. What was that, Bruce? How many pirates are there? Oh, it'd be a small force, maybe half a dozen at the most. So are 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 they uh, are they there with one of those uh, uh, standard uh, pirate vehicles with the twenty millimeter cannon on it, or are they they have something else going on? They probably just automatic weapons. Just, I mean, it, it's a small party. I mean, they they figured they come in, slim pickings, South Pacific town. You know, they come in, they grab some stuff and get out. Yeah, they can rob the bank. You know. Well, yeah, yeah. They problem is they, you know, they're not realizing that. Gee, New Caledonia, nineteen fifty. There are still military personnel on this island. They really want to get in and get out, and then oh great, I de- <laughs> United too. Oh boy. Yeah, that's somebody who can chase them onto the fringe pass. Yeah. All right. So you have the IDET behind them. You have the U.S. military in front of them. They have at least one crystal. That So if they're hunting for slaves, that kind of thing to sell maybe to the Coptics. Ooh. Maybe if, the, maybe if they have the Coptics nearby, oh, that, that, would, be, that would be a mess. Oh, or yes. I, I, I always saw the Coptics more as the slavers, but the fringe pirates... Yeah, I could see them, well, because as far as how we laid out the canon, fringe pirates are an early enemy, then the Mellow, then the Coptics. The fringe pirates, by the time we get to the Coptics, they're not gone, it's just they're becoming a lesser menace. You end up dealing with bigger and bigger things. The fringe pirates would still be around. That's right, maybe they're working for the Coptics. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Fringe pirates are going to, you know, whoever's got the more coin and better opportunity. Yeah. I can see the fringe pirates all of a sudden going, hmm, we might want to try this to try to keep going. And then just, yeah. All right. So they they have this standoff. um, They they grabbed a hostage. Do they just want to leave? Is that the idea? Or they want to are are they going to use her as leverage to get the fringe worthy to do something else? They just want the fringe-worthy to back off. It's like they got the woman's like, go on your way. Nothing to see here. Just let us finish our business or this poor woman ends up with an extra hole in her head. Right. That's, they're just using her as, as, let us do this. We'll be gone. And just, you know, be on our way. Right. That's all. It- well, heck, maybe they got something really valuable on them. If they're just trying to book out. I mean, they're just like... They're like, we don't want to fight or have anything to do. We just want to go away. Maybe they're uh, trying a little too hard to get away. Maybe they've already hit the bank. Yeah. Or maybe they have. Maybe they found some kind of really cool thing that they just want to make sure they get away with. Well, I, I think it'd be, as, you know, the, the great thing about the Fringe Pirates is because they go everywhere. And so it's, there, there should always be one or two interesting new artifacts to, you know, to, that, that they might have or possibly use on the team. <laughs> 
of course, if they do leave uh, with the girl uh, or without her, if they just get to the portal, then it, it, it raises the question, is the team going to try to go after them or are they just going or, or, or what? Because we haven't really talked about we talked about the idea of fringe security being a kind of a police force for the fringe paths, but these are explorers. So, uh, is there a sense that you know we uh, you know we're we're fringe worthy, and there and 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 the pirates are also fringe worthy. Therefore, we have some kind of moral obligation to d- do some kind of restitution. You know, uh, or is it just like, well, gee, tough luck. Uh, I mean, that may be that may be something that only can be answered by the individual team that's playing the game. I, I would think with IDEP, they kind of, as part of the charter, you know, yeah, this woman now realizes that, you know, there are people coming through strange portals into their world and all this. But, yeah, I would think that, okay, yeah, this lady's being taken against her will. General ethical would be like, we got to rescue this lady. We know these fringe pirates are bad. Yeah, this lady needs rescuing. And they got to figure out if they're just going to, you know, the one guy is just going to put a bullet right in the fringe pirate's brain and just let the woman freak out. Are they going to try to talk him down or? Right. Well, if she's fringe worthy, then you might not want to let her to not. You might want to have to do something with her because uh, if she otherwise she's just going to go tell the authorities about this portal thing and. And then you might now, you know, you'll have this armed force that might be set up around the portal, and that would kind of put the kibosh on any further adventuring on that particular world. So, uh, you know, if she's not fringeworthy, she may still see them drop her off at the portal, and, and therefore would know the location of the portal, which a lot of fringeworthy teams want to keep secret. All right. So they're going to have to deal with how. To you know the, the the final disposition of this woman, assuming that the, the pirates just don't shoot her in the head just to be mean and spiteful. If I was me, if I was a pirate, I'd shoot her in the leg, you know, and give her a wound <laughs> that if the, if the fringeworthy didn't, you know, give her immediate medical aid, then she would die, and that would help also slow down the fringeworthy. Right. Yeah. Yep. You know, like cut her Achilles tendons, or you know, stab her in the leg near the femoral artery, or something. You know. So, so what you, Bruce, you're, you're pulling out what is it? Oh, what is that uh, movie? Uh, Speed. Speed. I saw the movie, but I don't remember anything like this. There's a scene where where he uh, he's talking to his his uh, Jeff Jeff Daniels, and he says, "What do you do?" He's like, "I shoot the hostage in the leg," and he's like, "You do what?" He's like, "Yeah, you can't leave with the hostage now, and he's not going to kill it, he's not going to kill the person, or is unlikely to, or something like that." It's. Uh-huh. <laughs> Uh-huh. Although what it was, Jeff Jeff Daniels was taken hostage, so he shoots Jeff Daniels, and as they're oh, getting their commendations, that's what it was. They're there, yeah. Jeff Daniels is there with a cane, <laughs> looking at Keanu <laughs> like, "I hate you." Right. That's right. That's yeah, what it I was. I totally forgot that all it's, about. It's that. been a while yeah. since I've seen that movie, but yeah, really, that, that yeah. was it. Okay, well there you go. Uh, okay, well, great. Thanks, Trav. That sounds like a a, a great beginning, and I'm gonna be really interested to see how it ends up. So, Peter, you were, like, uh, chomping at the bit. You want to go next? Uh, Well, I was just volunteering, but sure, I'll go next. Okay. All right. Here we go. I did some Bruce like you. I was type, type, typing away. All right. (laughs) The team is assembled to an emergency session. Sitting at the table is a virtual who's who of IDET. 
Ed Powers walks in, his arm in a sling and several band-aids on his face. He welcomes the team and slides a small book across the table to the party. Upon inspecting the book, the party will realize that it is a child's diary. A section is bookmarked. Ed says, Go on, open it up, and read aloud the marked page. It reads, I was visited by my lion friend last night. He told me of a wondrous place, a magical place. He said things were bad here and that I had to leave soon, that they would come for me. He told me to keep it a secret, and he gave me a ticket. It was a ticket for a train. I love trains, especially the steam locomotive that comes through late at night with its chugging and whistle. I have always dreamed of hopping on it and leaving forever. He said that the train would take me to Blackshire. It's not very far, only a couple miles away. He said to go down to the alley on First Street and walk into the rainbow. He would meet me on the other side and let me know what to do next. I'm scared, but he said it was for the best. He said I was special. The orphanage will never miss me anyway. They are mean here. This diary was found on the body of a dead man. He was on an alternate that seems to have been wiped out by the Meller. The world is circa 1950, and he was two blocks from an orphanage, which is a mile from the rail station and five miles from the town called from a town called Blackshire. He also had an ornate flask with the initials JKM. What's import what's of importance here? Now this is this is DM's notes. This sounds an awful lot like a Termellan sighting. Two, it sounds like she's describing another warp. Why is there another warp on an alternate? Three, the initials JKM have turned up three times in the past three months and always on a dead body. Is this a calling card of some kind and has it been left for us on purpose? Your mission is to investigate the clues of this JKM. Follow the tracks. Go to the alley on First Street in Blackshire. See if there's a warp. And then the last bit of this is uh, notes to the Game Master where to go with this adventure. Uh, the warp is actually a transmat to a base inside the planet. If the party goes through it, they will find themselves in a large underground Tamelan base. If they look, they will find the girl in suspended animation. On the suspension tank, they will find a note on how to unfreeze her. It will have the initials JKM on it. That's it. Okay. So, so is there in fact a Meller threat on this world? Uh, no, it has been. Uh, it has it has disappeared. And that that will be part of the mystery. How they for, for one, we don't know how long this world has has been laid waste by the Meller. There there is evidence, and I don't know how you determine that, but Idet has determined that. Um, maybe maybe the tactics they use will be similar. I don't know. Um, but yeah, there. No- yeah. Did you have any kind of a thought about what whether this is an early, middle, or late campaign type of adventure? This is a later campaign adventure, uh, mainly because um, uh, the, they're sending the party there into a world that's obviously been attacked by the Meller. Um, there's no signs of them, but there's no reason to believe that they're completely gone. I mean, there's no there's no definitive way. Uh, I'm assuming the party is comfortable in dealing with that if they should run into it. Uh, maybe this is after they've already figured out the cure or or one of those things. Um, also, uh, it's letting them into a Tremelorn base where they'll have access to all kinds of stuff to play around with things. Um, and being that I've inserted a, a possible Tremelorn who's getting involved with things, he's doing something, he's he's being active. Um, it's it's an adventure that would involve a Meller. 
And this would be one that would be like a little down the road because I'd want to introduce the the JKM uh, initials on several adventures. So this is sort of one I'm just like, oh, there's that name again. Um, uh-huh. And maybe like a clue to get them closer to. It's like maybe they found the initials before but had no idea. You know, it's like, I don't, I don't have no idea what this is. But now they're like, oh, wait a minute. They're making a connection. Yeah. So what kind of a base is this? It's a it's an observation. So it was a um, it would have been like a, an observation type base, like you had. I think it was a movie, a Star Trek movie, Incursion, was it? Where they had that like invisible, they had that base that was behind a cloaking screen or something. It would have been something like that. Yeah, they were they were watching these people. Yes. Right. Okay. So, uh, is there is there something interesting about these people in particular that would do this? No, no, they they weren't very interesting. Uh, in, in particular, they were just watching a society evolve. Um, what is special is the girl because she's French worthy. Okay. You know, when you first started talking about this and you talked about them finding a man, I thought you, it, this was a surprise where it turns out that the man is actually mentally retarded. Mm-hmm. And so he was writing as a child because that's the way he is. Oh, that would have been kind of cool, too. And, and he and he somehow, for some reason, he died on the way to the portal and that's where they found all this stuff. And, you know, it still doesn't make him JKM, but right. I just thought that was an interesting twist that you were throwing in there. But instead, uh, is, is there going to be, are they going to be able to identify the body that, uh, that the, the diary was found on? Um, th- yes, they would, I would, if I were to write this out more, um, well, I would make, hoping you will. <laughs> I would make this a, um, I would probably introduce this as a, um, uh, a guy working for a group that is against iDebt. Like maybe another, you know, we talked about not pirate, but another, like an, another iDebt type group. But one that's in competition with iDebt, one that is, is uh, malevolent towards iDebt. Right, and maybe this Termalern has actually been helping them against this group as sort of like a, a an invisible agent. Right. It, does the Meller not go through the other, the second portal because it's afraid it's going to go through the fringe path and get zapped to death? It it Is doesn't know. It, ha- it doesn't know it's yeah. there. Oh, it doesn't. No, the second the second portal is is a warp, but it's not a um, uh, it's not a, it's not a warp to the to the to the fringe path. So they're not even looking for it. So they wouldn't even they wouldn't even see it. I, I wouldn't imagine unless they had a crystal on them. And even then, I don't know if they would see it. What is it? Hey, Rich, do uh, if a Meller has a uh, crystal on him and he's in a fringe-worthy body, will he see warps? They, they can see them anyways, but go oh, ahead. They, they can? Oh, yeah. Okay. They're fringe-worthy. All right, well, I hadn't thought that through. <laughs> I mean, the thing is, is if, if they think it's a warp, uh, if they have a crystal, and we've been saying it most of the time that they do, okay, then uh, they could use the fine portal uh, and then suddenly realize there's more than one hot potato feeling. Mm-hmm. Since you're saying there's two of them, but even so, it would be, you know, they'd be like, well, if I go through this, if they haven't found somebody else who's fringeworthy to take their form, right. then if they go through the portal, the portal system is going to zap them to death. Right. So they might not have, they might be leaving that portal alone because they're afraid to go through it and, and not realizing that there's a huge um, a warehouse of goodies because it's a Tamelaran base for crying out loud. Well, it's also possible that once the girl went through, he turned it off. And then when he killed this 
this guy that he put the flask on, maybe he he had recently turned it back on because he knew the friends were they were going to show up. So it might have been turned off in the interim. Yeah, if it's a warp, you can turn off the rainbow effect, so it's it becomes effectively invisible, and the only way you can detect it is with the fine portal detection skill uh, ability with a with a crystal. Right. Right. Yeah. So. So that's always possible. Yep. So, um, does the Meller have any particular agenda in this? No, the Meller is—they're just a—they're uh, just a trapping. They're just—they're just, they're just uh, there for flavor. The real story is uh, who is this JKM, and who is this this guy that they—the uh, dead body that they found. There's the and the girl and, and introducing the girl. What does she know? Why is she important? Why was she saved? What was um, you know what what's important about what's important about those three people? And and what okay. do they have to do with each other? Why did the Tremellans save her in particular? Was it just because she was fringeworthy, or was she really special? Was there something else? Yeah, it could be that she had Psy, maybe, um, you know, I don't know, maybe some other ability that we, we've come up with for the for the new system. Uh, you know how the Tamellern occasionally like to implant information in somebody's head? Oh, she might have that. Yeah, yeah. There you go. So, yeah. I mean, she they might want to use her as a, a kind of a mule to bring certain kinds of technology or information or even philosophy to this world. When she grows up, she's going to become you know a great leader, an inspirational person, or even a, a great scientist who somehow – Manage always manages to figure out how to use. Starts inventing some crazy stuff that that will revolutionize their entire world. Well, either that, or maybe he implanted a, a map in her head to get the fringeworthy to get Idet to find him. Where they where they need you know where they need Idet where he needs Idet to find him. Right. Okay. Anybody else got any questions, Richard? Anybody? Pretty good. That sounded pretty good. All right. Well, thank you, uh, Peter. We'll be looking forward to seeing the completed version. (laughs) Oh, God. Okay. Richard, you're up. Okay. First of all, I need a couple bits of information to clarify. What year was it? Oh, the one that I just did? No, you know, the year that, uh, for me. Oh. Uh, Hold on. We had that on the page, right? Was it 60? Uh, oh, for the series, the World Series, 61. 61, okay. <clears throat> and what city again? Uh, the city was Cincinnati, Ohio. Saturday, October 7th, Crosley Field, Cincinnati, Ohio. Reds versus the New York Yankees. Okay. What we have is they exit a portal. They're not too far from a ho- from a motel. Um, what they notice at the motel is they, as they begin to pass the motel, their electronics, which are now charged back up, of course, detect a ra- radiation signature. So obviously they're going to stop and track this down. That's a lot of radiation. That's a lot of radiation. In fact, there's U-235 apparently involved in this. It's all <laughs> going back to a, it's going back to a, a, what was that car again? The Studebaker Scotsman, 1958. Yep, back to a Studebaker. 
And if they investigate, they'll see that there's a room, there's another, there's a little bit of a track of radiation to the room, and definitely there's something in the Studebaker. And uh, what they're going to find in the Studebaker is at least uh, a half an ounce of U-235 in the trunk. You know, in a lead box that has been partially knocked over and opened up. Inside the vehicle, you're going to find a handful of receipts. Now, the main reason that the Fringeworthy are out at this site is the fact that Chileans have been in this area a lot for no apparent good reason. They've noticed several times that Chilean vehicles at this uh, uh, prime. Alt. Is it a prime or an alt, Richard? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be a prime. Okay. So... And if they check the other portals, they'll notice they're pretty random locations, except one goes right to Santiago, Chile, in that era. And the other one opens up right here at the hotel. Now, the group is going to obviously investigate. They're going to find the receipts. They're going to find some other stuff. Uh, they're going to find at least two tickets to the, uh, to the game. Uh, they're going to find more material, oddly odd stuff, basically a group in Chilean, or basically in Port uh, Portuguese, I believe. And uh, that information is going to be some notes and other stuff, and locations, and maps uh, to Los Alamos, uh, maps to the stadium, uh, information, basically historical information. And uh, if they investigate the room, they're going to find a dead Chilean officer yeah. who apparently has been shot through the head. Hate, hate when so, and uh, he's got more data. He's got, in fact, he's got a small notebook. If they go through the notebook, they'll notice that he's got uh, basically, he's, they're talking about a project, something. And uh, the project roughly translates out as they're going to be, Chileans want to establish multiple other, uh, basically, Chilean-friendly alternates. And what their plan is, to smuggle in the components of a small nuclear device, even though they couldn't get the nuclear material through the fringe paths. What they're going to do is they're going to basically plant it in Crossley Stadium, where Khrushchev and Kennedy are going to be attending the game mm. and hopefully Ooh. start a war. Oh. That Chile, that Chile would come out as very strong. Yeah, who's going to be who's going to be bombing Chile? Nobody. Nobody's going to be bombing Chile. They're going to be bombing the northern hemisphere. <laughs> and if you investigate a little more, there's some other stuff. There's some basically basic data that's going to clue them in that the new Chilean prime minister came from Earth Prime's Chile. Basically, oh. he was fringeworthy. They installed him. Oh. And uh, some of your clues are going to be uh, about 40 miles away, there's a machine jar. Basically, the government is being a little flaky because at least 
uh, uh, 10 pounds of U-235 has been stolen from Los Alamos, and they don't know where it's gone. The receipts will tell, take them to a machine shop where it was basically, it was cut to size, this, uh, two half spheres, or, or cast to size, one of the two, I'd have to look that up. And uh, basically, so they have a bomb load, which they can put into the, into the bomb, and basically take it to the stadium and, just, and take out the stadium. The whole, in fact, the whole small area. You only need 13 pounds of uh, U-235, and uh, the rest of the components are pretty small. And uh, basically, it's, it's really easy to build a bomb. Making it go off is harder, but at least if it goes off, it's going to, you know, even as a dud, it's going to take out most of that stadium. And it'll be, and it'll, it'll be a dirty bomb. And it'll be a very dirty bomb. Not dirty. quite as dirty as plutonium, but it'll be dirty enough. So, with you know, considering how radioactive this material is, how many people are showing up at the local hospital with, uh, um, uh, you know, with lum lum uh, luminous poisoning? Um, uranium is a little less, but in the fact that it's been only a few days. These, the people who did the machining are in the hospital. And they'll, they'll have, they'll be a, uh, a look, a, uh, apparently a, a, uh, look at that through the police records or police, uh, information for that area. That's where the one receipt will take you. So, obviously, there were going to be four tickets to this museum, or excuse me, pardon me, to this, uh, stadium. And uh, two of them were left because apparently two Chileans are, are one, one you found dead, and the other one you'll find along the way, basically who wanted to get out of the situation. He may try to contact the IDED people if he recognizes the vehicle, that kind of thing. Yeah. Beg them to take him back to the portal to get at least some of that stuff cleaned out of him. So obviously they've dumped one vehicle, they've dumped their, their vehicle somewhere, which will actually end up being behind the hotel. Uh, and then they, they've probably stolen a third vehicle, which you can find because there's another dead person in the, ho in the motel. Farther, farther over, you know, a few rooms away. There should be a string of bodies uh, within a couple of days. And, uh, and uh, the, you'll find the second Chilean officer dead there, apparently... The guy they picked on the steel of his car was a cop. So you got two two Chileans heading to the stadium, or somewhere in the area, and uh, they're going to try to do something. Best best way to track this would be probably to clue them in or let them try to track the radioactive material. Chileans also have a tremelin device that nobody knows about. Basically, what we call a blue field. And which negates the radiation spill from a, a nuclear material until it's removed from the vicinity. The problem with the shop was the machine tailings that came from this when they took when they took the device and the uh, the tailored uh, bomb core two pieces left enough radioactivity, and that's when people began to get sick. So we have a whole bunch of clues and some Chileans and Kennedy, and Khrushchev, and the probability, and they also have the electronics and the devices where they can tap into a lot of stuff, make some threats, that kind of thing. 
So they they definitely want to set up another another friendly Chilean state, but the head of, the head of the Chilean state will also be a planted fringeworthy. All right. So how big how big do you think this bomb is going to be? Since they're providing the probably sub probably a sub kiloton. No, no. How big in size physically? In size, well, this way. 12 pounds of uranium is a little bigger than a ping pong ball. That's all you need. And the bomb itself and the casing, about half the size of a suitcase, a small suitcase. So this is actually going to be a suitcase nuke? It's going to be a suitcase nuke. Okay. Yeah. So if they use the um, uh, the blue field on the suitcase, that even if uh, people are checking for any kind of nuclear material or anything like that, uh, just on the off chance that something like that might happen, they're not going to detect it because the blue field's going to keep any radiation from being uh, exposed. Correct. So what you're going to need, so what they're going to need to do is try to track a group of half English-speaking Chileans heading for the stadium. Well, well, not exactly because the blue field doesn't actually ne- neutralize the radiation material; it just neutralizes the emissions from the radiation. Or it keeps it keeps the radiation radioactive actions from occurring because if it's in a blue field, you know there's no half life action; it just stays there and it doesn't change, right? Yes, exactly. Okay, so but because they did this thing where they did the the grinding and the tailing and stuff, there's still a good chance that these people have, as you said, some of these tailings on them. So there still might be a very thin trail of nuclear material as it falls off of the, the, their clothing and other things. Fantastic idea, Bruce. Just, just enough. Just a little bit. Yeah. Just enough to lead them in the direction that they need to go. Because if they, can, if they start drawing, if they, they, they start measuring, where do we find this? Where do we find this part? And then draw a line and realize that we've got tickets to the stadium and it's in that direction, then it, that could be the clue that the players need, right? That would work. Yeah. Okay, so where exactly in this stadium do you think they would put this bomb? Would it matter? Probably as close to the presidential box or the prestige box as they could get. Uh, any idea how they'd be able to do that, considering? Back in the back in 6061, considering things like that, explosives, whatever, were a little larger, they could try to get it in past the Secret Service. But they could probably, it doesn't matter, that, you know, they could probably get it somewhere near the uh, main uh, uh, that that end of the stadium and just hope for the best. Where do you think the president and Khrushchev would sit to watch the baseball game? Would they be over the, uh, the uh, over home plate or do you think they would uh, be first or third base? <clears throat> Probably over home plate. And usually there are prestige boxes over home plates. Sure. Alright. So uh, now do you, uh, do you think there will be an opportunity for uh, the Fringeworthy uh, team to meet Khrushchev and and, uh, and John Kennedy, or is that too much to hope for? Um, if they could what? Meet them. Oh, that's, well, that is a possibility, but the main thing would be to get the bomb out of there or defuse it. 
and defusing a bomb anybody can do with a hammer and a chisel. Uh, well, you can keep it from exploding, but it does have an awful lot of high explosives in it, doesn't it, Richard? Well, most most modern uh, explosives are basically you're going to have a a set of discs that go around it that lock like a soccer ball, and that's explosives around the around the specifically machined two parts of the ball. What the explosives do is simply blow it together. And then, then okay, well, actually, it blows together with a smaller charge, and then it detonates once you go you know, all the way around. Well, hey, let me ask you a question. If, because I don't know if we've ever, I don't know if we've ever talked about this. If a person were to get radiation poisoning, right, and then go through a portal, that would be very helpful for them, wouldn't it? They're no longer radioactive, they're no longer poisoned, but the damage is still there. The blood cells and everything else. But the fringe past would probably help heal it. But only the damage that had been done so far. No, like, it would stop there, because the damage usually continues to happen. Right. I mean, all, all the um, uh, free radicals that would be in the tissues and the bloodstream, that would, st- uh, that would still be there. So if somebody cracks open that case and gets, you know, gets a face full of... Uh full of bad stuff, they could rush them through the portal and hopefully uh, keep them from dying that horrible death. They could rush through the portal and get rid of the free ride. Don't forget the portals are almost a doctor to themselves. Things like that, they may act on. Mm. Well, okay, you you can be nice if you want to, but remember, 500 rads is the... the lethal limit, whether whether or not you receive it by standing too close to a uh, an X-ray machine that was that that malfunctioned, or whether you start playing with plutonium. I mean, it just just the radiation itself can can kill you if you get more than 500 rads. That's pretty much the limit before it takes you know really serious hospitalization to give you any chance of survival. Yeah, but Bruce, this this stuff is uh, it's mostly dangerous if you get it on you or in you because it continues to pump radiation out into you. It's not it's not it, you're not getting a blast of radiation. I mean, you you are getting radiation, but but the worst part is it gets in you and then it keeps subjecting you to it. So if you were to go through the portal, it would it would stop all of that at least where you are. You you still have some recovery time, I I would imagine. This radiation is cumulative. <laughs> can walk yes. into a low radiation area and stay there for a week and eventually get poisoned. You can walk into a high radiation area or run out and not be as poisoned. Right, but the difference is, depending upon what kind of radiation it is, is, as I talked about those free radicals caused by the ionizing radiation moving through your body, it, you know, it'll create poisons in your body. So if you get a, a high dose short-term it actually, that will normally get be gotten rid of on a low dose situation. You know, it's the damage to your genetics that uh, is the biggest risk on the low dose. Mm-hmm. Because you'll you'll start producing really bad uh, proteins and things, and, and permanently you'll be producing bad proteins, and parts of your body will start dying, and then your body won't try to will try to reject it, and you'll be basically going into an autoimmune situation where your body literally kills itself. Right. So, but that's where the bio boosting effect is might be helpful to you. There's a historical story out of Los Al- uh, originally when they uh, uh, they built the bomb that uh, they were tickling the baby, moving pieces of uranium together, 
with screwdrivers to see what uh, when you what what you needed and distance to fission. And they started to fission two pieces, and one guy grabbed both pieces and pulled them apart. And he lasted about a week and a half. Mm. Yeah. And and in uh, another long term example, there was a guy. Uh, at a university that I attended, well, I, the story was told that he attended, that he was a professor, and he worked with nuclear material a lot. And he he didn't die of radiation poisoning, but he lost the use of his hands because he had he'd been handling it for so long that he'd received so much damage you know, to, his, to the genetics of the, of the tissues in his hands that essentially they turned into something other than useful hands. Wow. Radiation will destroy nervous tissue. That's one of the first things that will finish when you have a high dose. Let's not forget about those those poor uh, workers who were uh, painting the uh, the glow-in-the-dark watches with radium, and they would lick the brush so they could get a nice, uh, a nice yeah. uh, <laughs> decent, uh, what is it, uh, a nice pointed... Um, nice, nice, nice point on your brush, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they, I mean, I, I'm laughing. That's not funny, man, because they, they lost, oh, God, they lose like half their face from it. Yeah. Mostly because the bone with radium, the bone deteriorates. With, uh, in fact, those great those grave sites. I think they're in Ohio somewhere. You can, they're still hot. Wow. Wow. Well, it's, I'm sure it's very, very low radiation. Probably about the same level as what you were getting off those radium watches. <laughs> right. But you can detect it. Is Richard's point? Yeah, you can still detect it. Yeah. All right. So, uh, uh, best case scenario, they stop the bomb from going off um, uh, and and kill the the Chileans, or is that kind of a long term thing that the, the best they can do is just stop them for now? Any which way you can, and if you have enough time, if the timer on the bomb is high enough, race it back through the portal. Oh yeah. What about the other? Um, uh, 27 pounds of uranium. Not 27 pounds, just uh, 12. The, uh, the two ounces are still in the trunk. Uh, well, you, so, okay, so you changed it from 30 pounds of U-235 to... Oh, somebody said, they, uh, you, you originally said 30 pounds. I thought you said uh, two pounds. No, 30. Oh, boy, that's that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> that was the point. Yeah, John was saying, you know, 30 pounds of U-235, uh, U if it's in a, a single mass, is already at um, uh, a critical mass. Oh, my God. Oh, oh yeah. You, you can't go over 12 pounds or you start to get a critical mass. <laughs> okay, so. Oh, wait a minute. No, no, no. I got it. I, I, got, I got a save for this. What you found, right, there's a clue that leads you to the rest of it. Yeah. <laughs> you find a note on the guy. A note on the guy for for thirty pounds of, and you're like, wait a minute, we have two. Yeah. <laughs> now he no when you catch when you catch the uh, Chileans, they say you'll never get the other twenty seven pounds, or either that or <laughs> well, no wait a minute no I got it, I got it. you catch a Chilean Chileans and they're like, so you found the thirty pounds did you? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, uh, no, uh, no, no. <laughs> Or, yeah, yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. It was just where you left it. <laughs> Go find the other 28 quick. Yeah, right. There, there's, there's a massive uh, nat 20 on the bluff roll. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> of course, you found it. Yeah. 
And uh, then again, considering I've been to Cincinnati a couple times, uh, nobody would probably notice if you blew it up. Oh, oh, God. oh. No <laughs> offense to our Cincinnati yeah. listeners. It would get the sin out of Cincinnati. Oh, get a lot out of Cincinnati. You blow it up with 30 pounds of U-235. Anyways, okay. Well, thank you, Richard. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing the completed version. All right. So my stuff was um, I had the um, the wheel hub assembly for a Muscovy, a 750-pound anteater, and Catherine Hepburn. Uh, we open it up. And we're on the fringe paths, and the Muscovy is broken down. Yes, it's the wheel assembly, I'm afraid. She isn't going anywhere for a while, said the team mechanic. Well, that's a hell of a thing. We must be at least 15 miles to the next alt, grumbled the team leader. Let's get out the hard copy of the fringe maps. Maybe there's something there that can help us. Fifteen minutes later, after unearthing half the gear from the Muscovy, the ring binder was found. Why did we put it there again? So the French pirates wouldn't find it and use it to assault our equipment basis. Right. Well, they certainly would have given up before now. Looking to the next alt, uh, uh, no fringe base was found, but there was an alt that had a 1940 setting and might even have the right kind of parts. It was the right part of the world. Southeast Asia, huh? Well, it isn't Russia but they might have sold some Moscovy trucks to the Chinese. Time to break out the bikes? Well, unless you want to roller skate with a 40-pound pack. The portal opens onto a Chinese village in the Highlands. It's actually a Chinese farm in the Highlands. The air is cold, and there's just a hint of the smell of smoke. The team sneaks to a nearby farm and finds an old Chinese couple who are so gaunt that they might just blow away with the breeze. Just before they press forward to introduce themselves, they hear the sound of twin hammers clicking back. Turning around, they find a tall, familiar-looking woman with a double-barrel shotgun. Sort of Chinese, the woman is, but not quite. Suddenly, a team member blurts out, Catherine Hepburn? She (laughs) gives no reaction to the name and demands to know their business. Are you English spies? With conversation, the team realizes that she and her parents are conscripted farmers supporting the Chinese army in occupation in World War II. The Chinese leave them with little or nothing to eat so that all the food must be hidden. If the team members tell her about the Fringeworthy and their, uh, the ability to provide food and support in exchange for a Moscovy wheel assembly, Catherine will strike a deal. She has seen the Chinese with some heavy trucks that might fit the bill. After the best meal that they've had in two months, she leads, uh, she and her parents, that is, she leads them to the nearby village where the Chinese are billeted. Now, I could be wrong about this. Uh, it may be that they're supposed to be Chinese, I mean, uh, Japanese, but I'll, I'll, I'll fix that later. Uh, in addition to the diesel trucks, there are also huge 750-pound anteaters trained as mounts for the lower-rank officers and scouts. An examination of the trucks indicates that it will, be, it will with minor modification, provide a serviceable wheel assembly. Of course, you have to get that truck or the wheel assembly back 
to the portal and back to the Muscovy. Uh, the Chinese, uh, Catherine tells the team member that she and other farmers are ready to revolt against their oppressors, especially if IDET will support them. Later on, one of the team members will realize that this alt is a recreation of the movie Dragon Seed that starred Catherine Hepburn and hypothesize that this is one of those worlds that is driven by narrative. And that's it. That's all I got. Wait a minute. So one of the worlds that's driven by narrative? Yeah, it's one of those weird places where there's actually a story going on. Like, uh, and if you go to the world, you're now part of the story, and you have, and you, and you will not be able to leave the world until the story's over. Oh, well, I didn't know that existed. What? What? Yeah, that's uh, that's one. Uh, John Ryer loves talking about. He he believes that uh, a lot of the the alts and such on. Um, the uh, Victorian world are like that. Okay, so would this would this qualify as somewhat of an other? Because I mean, like, you're being pulled into. You can't leave until you finish the story. Yeah. Well, it, it also depends. The, the entire node could be like this, or it could just be this one alt. Oh, that's interesting. Okay. But see the but see the fact is it's essentially it's recreating the uh, the story of drag of, of Dragon Seed. Now, when this story ends, uh, the the, pl- uh, the the team has better beat feet themselves back to the portal and get out of there before another story starts and they get trapped again. Because because they're not going to keep repeating 1944, which is the when the movie came out, and and, and or whatever the year of the actual setting of Dragon Seed, because the movie came out in 1944. Right. Oh dear God, Bruce, they're on a giant holodeck. Pretty much, it's, uh, it's exactly the way it is. And uh, but when one story finishes, another story is going to start. Uh, and so if they're not careful, they'll get caught up in the next one and they won't be able to leave again. Because if you try to leave while the story is going on, something will always stop you. It wasn't really Catherine Hepburn. It's Catherine Hepburn because Catherine Hepburn was in the movie. Yes. And, and all the actors who are playing the roles, they also look like the, 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 the people look like those characters. Right. I mean, if you got a roster, you've got the movie, you'd see, you know, the, the, the person who's in charge of, of the occupying force is that actor. You know, the, the actors who played her parents. But they all act like it's real. They, as far as they're concerned, they, uh, Catherine Hepburn's character grew up there, you know, went to, uh, the, uh, uh, went to the, the, the Christian school and learned English so she can talk, uh, or because they've got the gifted language, they can speak Chinese. But anyways, the, the point is, is that uh, it's going to follow the plot line of the story. Uh, and so it's, it's, it's in the team's best interest to try to get them to the end. The problem is, of course, that almost none, this almost impossible to believe that these people have a copy of the movie. Hmm. So they're, they're probably not going to know what the events are going to be. They just know that they have to take part in them. Hmm. Okay. Okay. And, and therefore they have to get to the end of the story before, you know, and you know that Catherine Hepburn's the star because she's Catherine Hepburn for crying out loud. Right. 
So you got to stick with Catherine because she's going to show you where the narrative is leading. Right. Right. So anyway, so that that was the idea. Um, and I, I was going to have some fun with the uh, – uh, with with the giant anteaters because you know they're, they're you know they, they might get discovered by the anteaters and try to have to deal with a little animal handling business because, you know um, I also thought there's also a possibility of doing something to the anteater you know uh, and, uh, and and poison them or something because during this actual story Dragon Seed uh, she does poison almost everybody in the office in the officers club oh wow okay. And so you you might be involved in in an assassination plot because she's planning on she's going to plan on doing it you know if you give her another option that's not quite as uh, uh, you know uh, uh, distasteful then she w- might be willing to go with it something like a nice clean death with a massive amount of explosives but the you know, essentially they're caught in a narrative so you're going to be complicit one way or another and if you're not careful you can get killed. Hmm. By the narrative too. If you get in the way of the narrative, you're signing your death warrant. Right. Okay. okay this Bruce, is- are are the anteaters sponsoring all of this or controlling the situation? No, they're mounts. No, I, I thought about that, but yeah, I well, you know, that's more of the thing that you would do, Richard. Uh, I just kind of thought they would be interesting as alternate mounts because. There would be horses. Not everybody's going to be riding in a motorized vehicle. There, this is World War II. They still had horses in, in use, especially in places like China. Right. Bruce, I got another another one to fire at you. 1945, Catherine Hepburn was involved with Howard Hughes. Hughes yes. Aircraft. One of the greatest manufacturing groups that was making way advanced aircraft. Right, I saw the Aviator. Yeah, that's kind of cool. You could bring, yeah, you could bring in, you could bring Howard Hughes into the into the adventure. That might be kind of neat. Of course, he'd have nothing to do with this particular character. She's just a, a peasant girl living in a in a Chinese village. Right. She's not actually Catherine Hepburn. She just looks just like Catherine and talks like Catherine Hepburn, though she doesn't have the characteristic quaver that you know people associate with her. But is Catherine Hepburn, you know, man, uh, some of the mannerisms. But she, you know, she did a very good job. I've actually seen the movie, and it's a it's an uh, amazing different look for for her as as a uh, because they did very they tried very hard to make her look Chinese. Hmm. They did really. Yes. Oh my god. Now this is a black and white film, but yeah, the planes of her face and 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 her eyes—they made her eyes Chinese. So I'm saying she's. It's one of those like revelations where you're looking at her and you recognize her, but you know, but of course, somebody who hasn't watched any movies older than ten years, if you know, if there's fringe discoveries in the near future, nobody those people would ever would know what Catherine Hepburn looked like when she was young. Oh, of course, but gee, they're they're very similar. Yeah, they are. But uh, Kate Mulgrew Mulgrew is not is is was Captain Janeway. You look at Kate Mulgrew, it's like, okay, this is Catherine Hepburn's, like, love child. And then you look at, um... Oh, uh, Christian Slater. Christian Slater. Like, is this Jack Nicholson's love child that nobody's willing to acknowledge? Right. (laughs) It's like that. You know, it's it's strange doubles, you know, that happen. Uh... But anyways, that's uh, that's the idea. It was just to throw in that whole weirdness of 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 it being somebody that you know, 
And uh, I had a bunch of other ideas what to do with, with this, but I went with this idea. Because not too many people actually get involved in stories where they're trapped by the narrative like this. So, okay, so that that was basically my idea. Anybody else have any other questions about the adventure? Hmm. No, it's great, Bruce. Except I keep seeing aardvarks at the BAM clapping and looking at the fringe where you are looking around and going, what the hell are you? <laughs> well, you know... Uh, uh, I, I decide uh, not to bring in Cerebus, the aardvark. No, no, no. Which would be awesome in a way. <laughs> yeah, it would be. Well, I also thought about that maybe Catherine Hepburn would actually be a robot, and this would be like Shore Leave. Right. That, you know, this was actually in the Fringeworthy, uh, that somebody actually had this on their laptop, and somehow the system picked it up and, and created this entire scenario based upon the narrative that was the movie that was on somebody's laptop that they totally forgot about in their Muscovy somewhere. But, you know, I decided, no, let's play, let's play it straight, where it is the narrative. Cool. All right. All right. Well, that's it. We have done it. Hopefully some of our listeners will vote on this and tell us which one of the adventures they thought was the coolest and, uh, and maybe uh, you know, rift on, on it a bit themselves. Uh, we, do, we are going to, to be, put these up on probably Facebook as a file that we'll just attach to the Fringeworthy uh, uh, RPG fans uh, group. Uh, hopefully you guys will, uh, uh, you're all members uh, of that Facebook group, or at least have access to somebody who is, so you can get your hands on it, uh, because our, our, our website isn't really good for, for that, as far as attaching files. And we have an announced couple of announcements. Oh, we do. All right. What, what are the announcements, Richards? And uh, we're going to be releasing a new RPG supplement that didn't exist two weeks ago called Heradicator. And it's entitled, The Machines Are Alive and Humanity is the Target. It's science fiction role-playing in the, in the machine apocalypse. Hmm. We're not okay. sure quite where it came from, but it was there, and suddenly 30 pages of it are almost finished. So so this is something you're writing? Something I... It just... It prepped out. We don't know why. We're supposed to have uh, Portals 4 finished. The art still isn't done. And uh, then this thing just kind of crept out by accident. The advisor on the project is one of the greatest robotics programmers in the country. Oh. And uh, the cover is beautiful. It's a burning buildings in a robotic arm reaching into the sky. And uh, so it looks good. It's both serious and a, and a touch of odd. Hmm. Okay. So it's both role-playing and miniatures. And uh, it, it looks, I, I, I love the cover, and we haven't posted anything on it yet. But, uh, and we had to come up with something, every, every robo title and apocalypse title, or machine and robot title, all of it's been used. And then we said, okay, uh, human, eradicators, wait a minute, H-U-R-A-D-I-C-A-T-O-R, eradicator. So basically, humans need to survive. And it also can be used with Frenchworthy. Can't everything. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. 
<laughs> of course, is the is the uber game that comprises every other game that has ever existed and ever will exist. Which is why it becomes part of every one of our campaigns, no matter what we're playing or where we're playing. So we we've been kind of busy and kind of weird, and uh, so things things are moving along. Very good. Portals four next, and if it's okay with uh, with you, Blix, uh, we can stick a JKM on the back of one of the pickup trucks that the Chamoan are hanging off. <laughs> awesome! Yeah, let's do it. So, that's good. All right, as long as I have permission to do that, we'll do it. <laughs> yeah, no problem. You know what? I'm I'm now going to have to make this JKM up. He's going to be like a, a James Bond of the Termelon. You know what? I'm I'm going to make him one of the ones that isn't super nice. Like he isn't like you know because the Termelon, at least as far as we've always seen in our campaigns, Termelon's always painted as these uh, benevolent, you know, cutesy kind of guys. He, he's going to be an agent. He's going to be the JP Withers of the Fringe Pats. Oh no! Yeah, there no, you no, go. no, no, no. Oh, I saw, J- I saw JP at Marcon. JP's doing well. Oh, great. Last I heard, he was out in California. Is he still there? He's the one who was who's working on the uh, the Alzheimer's uh, the Alzheimer's issues and uh, uh, drugs they're using and that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah, um, he, he he's a big fan of Burning Man. Yeah. He's at, I think he's on staff there. We had people from Burning Man come down, look at the TriTac games and the stuff we do, and say that we, we follow like 80% of the guidelines for companies that do the Burning Man kind of thing. You know, we're nice to gamers, we give people stuff, we're fair, we have low prices on major RPGs, that kind of thing. Hmm. It's kind of cute. I was very surprised at that. At Burning Man? Apparently, there's there's a whole code of ethics that they use with Burning Man, the merchants huh. and everything else. Nice. Thinking of, we're thinking of getting the uh, bits and pieces for Rogue, uh, Rogue Four Seventeen Two out of uh, Detroit, much like the Eradicator provided a lot of uh, great pictures. <laughs> we want to thank everybody who uh, who's been with us through this entire little experiment. Uh, if you liked this kind of thing, uh, let us know because uh, when I first did the podcast, I figured at one point we would start doing just this, where we would be developing adventures and we would be coming online and explaining how, we, you know, laying them out and then making them available for download. So this is a kind of a taste as to one of the directions that the TriTech podcast could go in the future. Uh, we'd like your feedback on it. We'd love, you know, to... And if you have some great ideas and you want to get in on this kind of thing, if you want to write up modules and adventures for uh, the various games we produce, we're certainly willing to uh, take a look at those and make them available just or just post them yourself to the Facebook group. And we are going to have more stuff of, of one of the games that we do, possibly Fringeworthy, possibly Hardwater Hinterland. It could even be uh, uh, Beach Bunny Bimbos with Blasters or Duck Trooper. You never know with the TriTac podcast. But you'll have to wait until next week. See you then. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there. So go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. 
Don't hate the game, hate the players. This is Richard Tahoka. Wait till you see what's coming next. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be having your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.